Good morning. Welcome to spring. Finally, right? It's finally here. Wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? How many of you spent the entire day inside? Oh, I'm so sorry. How many of you got to be outside yesterday? Took my kids to the park. It was beautiful. I love spring. I'm excited for spring. Not ready for summer, but excited for spring. One of the reasons I get so excited for spring is because in the church world, spring means Easter. Easter is coming in in about three weeks, not in about three weeks, but in three weeks, three Sundays from now, will be Easter, and inside your your bulletin, everyone should have gotten one of these. Now, this is not for you, because hopefully, if you're here this morning, you'll already be with us on on Easter Sunday. So what this is for is for you to take this to one of your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, who you're not sure they have a church home, you don't think they have a church home, maybe you know they don't have a church home, and invite them to our Easter Sunday service. It's going to be a great service. Um, It's always a, a great time where the gospel is preached and where Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is celebrated. If one is not enough for you, then there are more in the back and we can always order more. You're going to be getting one of these a week for the next two or three weeks. Uh, And just, I really encourage you to be praying and be thinking about, God, who could I invite to our Easter service here at River Rock Bible Church? Who could come and celebrate? One thing my family does, it's been... um, it's been a lot of fun to do this the last couple years, which is we invite our friends to church with us, and you'd be surprised. People that won't normally go to church, they'll come to church on Easter, and that's a good thing, right? Sometimes churches get upset and like, well, you're just here on Christmas and Easter, but that's a good thing that certain times of the year, people will come, and they're going to hear about Jesus Christ, but one thing we do is we say, hey, let's invite all of our friends to church that may not have a church home, and then come to our house for a barbecue afterwards. So even if they don't come to the service, or if they're, they're like, well, I'm not sure about the service, you tell them you're barbecuing afterwards, they'll show up, I promise. Um, we've had people that, like, you know what, I'm only here for the barbecue, but I'll tolerate this preaching thing for the next 20 minutes. Um, wake me up when the barbecue's ready. So really encourage you to be thinking about that, be thinking about what God would have you do and who he would have you invite. Um, as we lead up to Easter, I also want to remind you about our reading plan. Um, it's been great for me. I actually just got stopped this morning by someone saying, hey, I just want you to know that I'm taking these verses that we're going through in our reading plan, and I'm reading them with my friends at work every single day um, and at our lunch break. I'm reading them. People are engaging in the Word of God, and what I love about this is that we have an opportunity, because we're not going verse by verse and word by word, uh, every Sunday morning we're just taking a little snippet out of each chapter, um, it allows you to read the entire chapter to see everything that's going on. So when we come on Sunday morning and we look at just one small section of a chapter, you have a full picture of everything that's happened leading up. So I want to encourage you, if, if you haven't picked up a reading guide, there's some in the back. It's available online. It's not too late. Dive right in. Um, get engaged in the Word of God. You can either go back and read all six chapters leading up to uh, um, chapter 7 this week, or you can just jump right in in chapter 7. Something is better than nothing. Jump in. Engage with us. Get into the Word of God. It's exciting. And as we do that, I just want us to, to think a little bit this morning um, about... God's grace. I want us to think about God's grace. If you notice, all the songs that Stephen led us in, Stephen and the band led us in, had to do with God's grace, our need for his grace. Lord, I need you every hour. And it's my prayer that when we leave here this morning, that every single one of us would have a deeper understanding of God's grace and our need for it in our lives. 
I want us to leave here with a new, deeper, transformative understanding of God's grace. Because I do believe that it's our understanding of God's grace that drives everything that we do. It affects our relationship with God. It affects who we are as a man or as a woman. It affects the kind of husband or wife that we are. Even affects the kind of employee that we are, the way that we work, how we work. All of these things are affected by our understanding of God's grace. And so I want us just for a moment to be thinking about God's grace. Jesus says that the road to God's grace is narrow and difficult and very few find it. Why is that? Why is it that very few people find that path, find that road? And why is it so difficult? I think a lot of it has to do with with our own self-awareness because understanding our need for God's grace takes a little bit of self-awareness and not many people are willing to take that step that it takes. To have that kind of self-awareness, that painful self-awareness that I'm in need of God's grace, that things are not as good as I think they are. And this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, last couple weeks, chapters 5 and chapter 6, we covered about 60 verses in those two chapters. That's quite a bit. This morning we're just going to focus on one verse. Mark chapter 7, one verse. And it's really this verse that I believe is kind of the pivot point of Jesus' ministry. Everything that we've been reading about and hearing about, about his, his conflict with the Pharisees and, and his disciples and the Pharisees leading up, has led up to this point. And it's going to inform everything that's going to happen afterwards, where he has this encounter with them that he says, you know what, I'm no longer going to hide. It's time to throw down the gauntlet. We're going to lay it out right here. And that's going to happen in chapter 7, verse 15. It has everything to do with the conflict that's come before, and it has everything to do with what's going to happen in the remaining chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7, verse 15 says, Nothing that goes into the person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Let me read that again. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know when the last time you used the word defiled was. Um, It's not a word that we use very often. Maybe you've got one of those word-a-day calendars, and you sat down to a meal with your your family, and you said, I can't eat this. This is defiled. Um, If you went to public school, maybe it's like, where did you put that? I put that in defile. Um, Maybe it was, um, honey, I can't find it. Maybe you defiled it. I don't know. Um, So we don't really use this word, but it means unholy. It means unclean. Right? For our modern terms, it would just mean dirty. And so Jesus is talking about the things uh, that make us clean and unclean and dirty. Like, what is it that makes us dirty? What, what is it? Uh, another way to think about it is that it's not in the original state that God intended. When something is defiled, it's not in the original state that God intended. There's something wrong with it. There's something wrong with it. Now, to put these verses in a little bit of context for you, Um, Jesus and his disciples have come in, they sit down, and they start eating. And the Pharisees notice that they didn't wash their hands. So they get up, and they come over to Jesus and say, Jesus, how come you and your disciples don't wash your hands before you eat? Now, when they talk about washing your hands, this is not like you tell your kids, go wash your hands um, before dinner, right? This is not about getting the germs off your hands. 
This was a ceremonial washing that was a tradition of the elders of the nation of Israel where they would come in and they would wash their hands ceremonially any time before they ate. And the reason they did this was because they may have accidentally touched something that was unclean. They may have accidentally touched something that was defiled and that would make them defiled. And if my hands are defiled and I eat food with defiled hands, then I'm defiled, right? And so it was this whole process that they went through, and Jesus' disciples don't do that. And they call him out. Now, you guys all know this. We've all been at the restaurant, and there's that one guy who sits down with his family, and all of a sudden, you know, they can't just bow their heads and pray. It's got to be, oh, Lord, we thank thee, Lord. And everybody in the whole restaurant knows that he's praying, and he's praying for you because you're the sinner that didn't stand up and pray out loud like that, right? We've all been there. And I imagine that this is what the Pharisees did. They didn't come over to Jesus and say, um, excuse me, Jesus, we're just wondering, how come your disciples don't wash their hands? No, no. They probably walked over. They probably let it be known to everyone in the entire place that we're coming over to Jesus. Excuse me, Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't wash your hands? And so Jesus says, all right, we're going to do this. It's no longer time for me to hide. It's no longer time for me to avoid this confrontation. It's time to lay down. And so he calls everyone who could have possibly heard the question that the Pharisees asked. Everyone in the place, he says, come here. Listen to me. It's not about what you put in your body that defiles you. It's what's already inside of you that makes you unclean and unholy and defiled. Now, that doesn't seem like very much to us. We read this verse and we say, okay, great, I got it. It's not what goes in me, it's what comes out. Good, I got it, Jesus. But to a first century Jew, to a Pharisee, these words would have made almost no sense to them. This was the absolute most offensive thing that Jesus could have said to the Pharisees. That it's not about what happens on the outside, it's about what's taking place on the inside. This is the most offensive thing that he could have possibly said to them. Because they've built their entire lives around this system of things on the outside. They've, they've been thinking about what can I do? What do I have to avoid? And it shatters their entire way of thinking. It shatters their entire life. And Jesus has just told them, basically, hey, um, it's not the things that you touch that make you dirty. It's what's already inside of you. It's the way that you are naturally, the way that you're born that makes you unclean. So Pharisees, the entire way that you've been living your life has been a waste. You've wasted your time. It doesn't do you any good. It's not drawing you any closer to God. And he throws down the gauntlet. He throws it down. And we start to see things change after this point even more. And the funny thing is that as much as we often know this, as much as those of us who've been in church, maybe our whole lives, maybe just for a year, maybe just for a few months, most of us know that it's not about what's on the outside that matters. It's what's on the inside. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves in the same trap, working from the outside in. Can we be honest? How many of you have ever caught yourself working from the outside in, thinking, if I can just do this, then I'll be more holy. If I can just avoid this, then I'll be closer to God. Anybody besides me? Okay, thank you. Good. I was getting a little worried there. I was going to have to start looking for another job. Uh, so here's what I want us to understand, is that people who work from the outside in, people like the Pharisees who work from the outside in, there's two things that we need to understand. 
See, the Pharisees thought that if I could manage my physical life, that would have a profound effect on my spiritual life. They were working from the outside in. People who work from the outside in, number one, they misunderstand the nature of the problem. They misunderstand the nature of the problem. The problem is not on the outside. It has nothing to do with the words that I say, the things that I put in my body, whether I eat or drink, or what I eat and don't eat and don't drink. It has nothing to do with the TV shows that I watch, or it has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with what is already inside of you from the moment you're born. And the second thing, that people who work from the outside in, they misunderstand the nature of the problem, and they underestimate the severity of the problem. We have the same issue when we work from the outside in. And what's the problem? The problem is this, that you and I are not much like God. You and I are not much like God. God is perfect in his holiness. God is completely undefiled. God is completely clean, and you and I are not that way. The Pharisees thought that their spiritual cleanliness could address the problem of the sin in their lives, and Jesus here is calling him out. He's saying, that's not it. They thought they weren't in need of God. They thought they had the answers. They thought they had everything under control. They thought they knew. They thought they had it all under control. They couldn't see their own need for God. They did thousands of things on the surface to try to cover up, to try to make reparations for something that they can never, ever atone for. They thought, all I have to do is just minimize the sinfulness in me. And I think every single one of us has that tendency to minimize our own sinfulness. And sometimes we take it to an extreme. We forget how, how deep our need for Jesus is. We try to think, well, I'm just, I'm not that bad, right? We justify our actions. And we look for ways to, to say that, that our, our action is rationalized. We're justified in acting the way we do, and here's what happens. Here's why I think we end up this way, is because so often when we think about our holiness, when we think about our cleanliness, when we think about our righteousness, we think about our holiness in comparison to other people, and not in comparison with God. Think about that. It's easy for me to look around this room and say, hey, I can do better than so-and-so at this part of my life. It's easy to step outside my door and say, well, I definitely am not as bad as this neighbor, right? But that's not the standard. The standard is God himself. And when we compare ourselves to God, the game changes completely because God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly just. God is perfect in every single way that we will never be. In fact, there's an entire book of the Old Testament written about this. Um, It's the book of Leviticus, right? And so you have, this was the favorite book of the Pharisees. This was their absolute favorite book because it was a list of laws that God had laid out for them to, to, on how they were to relate to this perfectly holy God. And the Pharisees took this list, they took this book of all the laws, and they said, you know what, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. If God is truly concerned about clean and unclean, we need to add to it. We need to come up with our own laws. We need to do more. In fact, you know what? I think I can handle this on my own. And they completely missed the point. They completely missed the point. Leviticus 19.2 says, 
Be holy, as I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Be holy, as I am holy, right? How holy is that? Is that a standard that we could ever possibly reach on our own? That verse, Leviticus 19.2, that is the pivotal point of this book. That is the point where everything hinges on this. It's all about your holiness. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus Christ. And if you were to read through the book of Leviticus, you could probably get through it in a, in a couple hours, depending on how many times you fall asleep. Um, it's not very exciting. Some of you have tried reading the book of Leviticus before, and you say, okay, this isn't very fun. I want to go to Judges where they're fighting and battles and all that cool stuff that keeps me entertained. Um, and I can't blame you for not wanting to work your way through Leviticus, but everything in there was to point to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus And the point of Leviticus is not, here's what you have to do in order to earn my favor. The point of Leviticus, the thing that God was trying to point to the people is, look, there is no way that you can live up to this standard. There's no way. You cannot do it on your own. You're going to need my help. Yet the Pharisees missed it. The Pharisees missed. They thought, I got this. I can do this. In fact, I'm going to add to it. And they missed the point. They missed what God was trying to show them. They missed that their holiness was so fragile that just by accidentally touching something that was unclean would compromise their holiness. And they missed the point. They missed their deep need for Jesus Christ. They missed their deep need for God. They thought, I'm not that bad. I'm doing okay. Leviticus, the whole point is that you are not okay. Can we admit that? Can we all say that together? I am not okay. Let's say that again. I am not okay. When we have that understanding, it's only when we have that understanding that I am not okay that we begin to see our need for Jesus Christ and the grace of God that is offered through Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. Shortly after Amanda and I moved to Austin uh, for, to plant a church, we were living with my father-in-law. We lived with him for a couple months because we moved to Austin. We knew we were going to plant somewhere in the Austin area, but we didn't know exactly where. And so we lived with my father-in-law for about six months, um, which was a fun experience for me because I, I'm very prideful. You know, I don't, don't want to take charity from someone. I don't want to move back into my parents' house, but it was, uh, it was the logical thing to do. So we did it for six months. And I remember one night I came home, I'd been in the church plant residency for about six weeks at this point, and part of that residency, one of the things they want you to do is every single day, they say, okay, go out and share the gospel, and when you come back tomorrow, we'll talk about who you shared the gospel with and how it went. Because they knew that church planting was not just about going out and hanging out with church people and finding church people and saying, hey, I'm starting a church, come, come be a part of this new church. But it was about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to lead people to do that, then you've got to be comfortable doing it yourself. You've got to be setting that example. So every day, I would go out to different places. I would drive around the city. I would, I would come to HEB, both HEBs here in Georgetown, and I'd walk up to people and say, hi, my name's Charlie. My wife and I are thinking about moving here. What can you tell me about the area? 
by the way, do you have a church home? By the way, have you ever heard about Jesus? And I would just, you know, I would, Starbucks, the people at Wolf Ranch, like they could see me coming. They knew, oh, here comes the gospel guy, right? They just knew that it was coming. And, but this is what I did every single day uh, for, for a long, long time. Uh, and one day I came home. I was tired. We were getting the kids ready for bed. It had been a long week. It had been a long day. And there's a knock at the door. So I go to answer the door, and I said, yes, can I help you? And it was two Mormon missionaries. And I said, guys, I'm getting my, my kids ready for bed. I don't have time for this. Bam, close the door, turn around, walk inside. Amanda says, who was it? And I said, well, it was two Mormon missionaries. Well, did you share the gospel with them? No, I'm tired. She goes, well, don't you think you should? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, are you going to go out there? Yes, I am. Okay, so... I go back outside, I grab my Bible, I head back outside. By this time, they've knocked on someone else's door, so I wait for them to slam the door in their face. And uh, they come walking back, and I said, hey guys, come on over here. So I called them over, and I said, here's, here's how this is going to go down. Um, we're going to talk, but we're going to use my Bible. Oh, let me see it. Oh, it's not the same version we use. I'm like, do you speak Greek and Hebrew? Because I can go get my Greek and Hebrew Bible, and we can use that. Oh no, this one will work just fine. That's what I thought. Uh, so... Uh, I said, we're going to use my Bible. I'm going to let you guys speak first, and then you're going to listen to me. And so I let them go all the way through everything they had to say. They were using my Bible. They were pulling, you know, Scripture out and telling me what they thought it said. And I said, okay, this is great. And then I just started talking to them about Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And, and do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven? And I just started pointing them to all these passages Anytime they had an objection, there were verses that I didn't even know I knew where they were until I was in that moment and the Holy Spirit says, hey, um, go to this verse. And I would take them to that verse. And one of the, the younger ones um, starts asking me questions. I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. I'm going to get to see this guy put his trust in Jesus right here. And the older guy says, well, it's getting dark. It's getting late. We better go. And the younger guy goes, no, no, no. He said he was getting his kids ready for bed. Why don't we go inside and let him get his kids ready for bed and then we can keep talking. I have more questions. And the guy says, no, we have to leave right now. And they take off. They get on their bikes with their helmets and backpacks and they go back to wherever more missionaries go. I don't know. Uh, and I go inside. And let me tell you, at that moment, in the little space that it took to get from the sidewalk to the front door, I started feeling really good about myself. I'm a good Christian. How holy am I that I just shared the gospel with these two men, and one of them was this close to putting his trust in Jesus Christ, forgetting that it was my wife who had to essentially slap me upside the head and say, hey, dummy, get out there and share the gospel with them. My pride had already taken over. So at the moment that I feel like I'm at my highest, my holiest, guess what? My ugliness and my sin is still right there to drag me back down. And it was in that moment that I really began to realize how desperately I really need Jesus Christ. I had trusted him so long ago at the age of six, but it was in that moment that I realized how jacked up I truly am. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had that moment where you're thinking, I'm doing pretty good, and then all of a sudden God reveals the truth about who you are, and you realize your need for Jesus Christ? It happened uh, again in a different way this past week. Um, God has, has really um, been working in me 
in some areas, and one of those is this, that I was born, I, I think I get it from my mom, but I have a strong sense of justice. When I see something that is wrong, I want to fix it. I want to do everything I can to fix it. And I love history. History is one of my absolute favorite things. If I had cable and I had the History Channel, you would never see me ever again. I would just sit there and watch it all day long. Um, two of my favorite books were written by a man named Stephen Ambrose. One of them is called D-Day. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's all about the invasion of Normandy. And it's written, um, he uses so many letters and first-person encounters, uh, uh, primary source material to tell the story of D-Day from the viewpoint of the soldiers and the people who were there in Normandy, even from the viewpoint of the German soldiers. And then he, he wrote another book called Citizen Soldier, which is probably his most famous one. And in fact, they, they took it and they turned it into Band of Brothers. How many, how many of you remember that series? I love that series. I own it on Blu-ray. I watch it at least once a year, all the way through. I could watch it nonstop and never grow tired of it. I love it. But here's the difficult thing for me. When I see movies like that, TV shows like that, Saving Private Ryan, and I see the evil that the Nazis were capable of, and I see that, my heart begins to burn, and I want nothing more than to be able to travel back in time and pick up a rifle and go over there and do something about it. As I watch the news this week, Many of you are well aware of the evil that exists in the world because it's in our face every night on the news. If you've been keeping up with what's going on in the Middle East, you know about ISIS. You know what they've been doing to Christians, to men, women, and children, and the evil that exists, and it's everything. I just, I just wish that I could jump through the TV and do something about it. I get so angry and I get so frustrated because of the evil that I see being played out on the TV when 21 Christians are beheaded and the world barely notices. When a Jordanian pilot is immolated, burned alive, and there's very little that's done for it, it just makes my blood boil and I, I just I want to get over there and take care of the problem myself. And here's what happened this week as I watched the news reports. As I thought about all the things that ISIS had done, the things they're probably doing that we don't even know about, something hit me. The evilness, the wickedness, the sinfulness that rests in the heart of the people who do the most horrendous and heinous things is the same sinfulness that rests inside of me. It's the same sinfulness. We're both created in the image of God. We're both created in the image of God, yet we both have that brokenness inside of us. And I know some of you are saying, Charlie, you do not have it in you to do what these people do. And I, I hope, <laughs> I, I believe that that's true, that I don't have it in me to do the things that they do. But that same seed of sin that causes people to do those horrendous things, to commit those heinous acts, rests inside of each and every one of us. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that and faced your own depravity? That that same seed is inside of you. For me, when I thought about it this week, uh, it brought a whole new light to my mind. 
And I began praying in a different way. Pray for those who persecute you. Completely changed the way that I look at these things. It's still not easy. There's still that sense of justice, but to come to the realization that the only difference between me and someone like that is that I'm saved by the grace of God because I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. There's nothing like being confronted with your own depravity. Um, it's, an, it's not until we recognize our need for God, it's not until we recognize the depths of our depravity that we, we begin to see our need for God. Because up to that point, if you think I'm doing okay, then, then you probably think, I don't need God. All I need is a procedure. All I need is a set of rules. That's where the Pharisees were. That's what they had in mind. Yet God very clearly says that's not the case. That's not the case. We've got to be aware of the depth of our depravity. And you may be wondering, maybe you've thought about this before, why did Jesus have to die such a horrible death? Why was it such an awful, gruesome thing that he suffered on the cross? Think about this. If all your heart needed was a little tweak, if you were just a little bit off and God just could just flip a switch and you'd be okay, do you really think Jesus would have gone through all of that? If all it needed was a little tweak. I think Christ's sacrifice on the cross is proportional to the problem in our hearts. It was a horrible death that he died because it is a horrible problem that exists in our hearts. Praise God that he died on that cross and rose again so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can experience God's grace. There's one other passage I want us to think about. And that's Leviticus 16. And that's, it's actually Leviticus 16 and Zechariah 3. In Leviticus 16, what we have are the, the rules laid out for the Day of Atonement, right? Yom Kippur. It's still celebrated today. The Day of Atonement was the day that the priests would go and make sacrifice for all the sins of all Israel so that they could be absolved, right? So that their sins would no longer be in front of God. And so they had this whole process. And it started with the high priest being set aside for a week. The high priest was in isolation where he just focused on his relationship with God and not sinning. I'm going to do everything I can to not sin, right? Because here's what would happen on that day of atonement. The high priest, this is the one time of year that they would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was the place where God's presence rested inside of the temple, and there was one day a year that they would go in there, and this was so serious. They had to be completely clean before God. They had to be completely uh, undefiled. Because if they weren't, they would die because God could not be in the presence of unholiness, of a defiled person. And so what they would do, this was a, this was a very serious thing. The high priest would have bells attached to his robe and a, a rope tied around his waist so if the bells stopped moving, they'd just pull the rope and they'd pull the dead guy out because no one else could go in there because they would die. This was a very serious thing. And on the Day of Atonement, here's what would happen. After a week of separation, the high priest would come and stand before the people in the temple. He would go behind a curtain. He would strip down out of everything. He would bathe himself, a ceremonial cleansing. Then he would put on a white linen robe. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for his own sin. Then he would come out, get behind the curtain, take off his clothes, take another bath, 
Put on new white linen garments, perfectly clean linen garments. Go back in. Make another sacrifice for the priests. Come out. Go through the whole process all again. And go back in. And finally make another sacrifice for all the people. This was the process. This is what they went through every year. And they did this in front of all the people because the people wanted accountability. The people wanted to be sure that my sin is going to be taken care of. I've got to know that this is done right. I want to make sure it's done right. And then we read in Zechariah 3 about the high priest Joshua who goes, and the picture is this, that it says that Zechariah looked at the high priest Joshua and he was covered in filth. And the intimation there in the Hebrew is that it was excrement. Imagine the high priest on the one day of the year that he is supposed to be completely undefiled is covered in filth. And this is what Zechariah sees. And it opens his eyes to see that this is exactly how God sees me. Even at my holiest, even at my cleanest, even at my most righteous, God sees me as covered in filth. As I said earlier, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, and I don't think it's any mistake that the high priest that Zechariah sees is named Joshua. Some translations may say Yeshua, which we know is the Hebrew name translated into Greek and Aramaic is Jesus. And it's looking forward to another day of atonement that we're about to celebrate in just a few weeks. That day when the great high priest, the undefiled high priest, was hung on a cross and our filth, our defilement, was placed upon him. And he died in our place so that our sins could be covered. That we wouldn't have to pay that penalty. That we could simply trust in him and experience God's grace. My question to you is, are you still working from the outside in? Are you still working from the outside in? Or, or do you understand the severity of the problem? Do you understand how deep the issue runs? It's my hope that if you're here, maybe you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've put your trust in Christ for a number of years, and you're realizing today that you've still been trying to work from the outside in. Yeah, yeah, I know about Jesus, I know about God's grace, but I'm still trying to work from the outside in. Maybe you're here this morning and you you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe today has brought a new understanding of the depth of the problem that is sin. It's my prayer that every single one of us would leave with, with a transformative understanding of God's grace and our deep, deep need for it. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that it is only through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can truly have our sins covered. Lord, we we recognize that before you, we are broken, we are defiled, we are unclean, we are unholy, Lord. You, God, are perfectly holy. You're perfectly clean in every way, and there is no way that we can match up with your standard. Lord, help us to understand our need. Help us to turn to you at every moment to see our need for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning who is yet to trust in you, that you would help us, help them to see 
their need for you, and they would choose to put their trust in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.